The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Good morning. All right, how's everyone doing this morning? Good morning, Santan. How you doing? That wasn't good enough. Santan, how you doing? <laughs> hey, good job over there. Thank you so much for being there um, here today. Thank you for those who came in overflow. Five o'clock service. Um, all those who are listening on the web, we thank you so much. Um, this series, the Unshakable series, um, for me, got off to a, a rather unique start. Um, last night, I was in the office and um, just sitting there, getting ready. I would say I was praying and being all spiritual. I was actually listening to metal music, trying to figure things out. And, and then all of a sudden, I felt something that I haven't felt in about 15 years. And I popped my headphones out, and I'm sitting at my desk, and everything starts moving. It's about 10 o'clock last night. Everything starts moving. I'm sitting there going, and I'm, I'm fresh off the paranormal series, just going. <laughs> I look over at my door, and I've got a Buckeye necklace there, and that's sort of to ward off all those people from the school up north. And, and so it's there, and it's moving. It's moving. And you, I hear this rumble, and, and I'm moving, and I'm, I weigh more than that. And I'm going, I think... I just had or felt an earthquake. And I'm running through all these things. Well, I'm in Arizona. And I was like, I'm in Arizona, and I just felt an earthquake. Immediately, I call home. Did you feel something? My wife's all, no. I'm like, call my sister in Southern California. Make sure she's not floating somewhere. And, and so she, she calls, um, and no earthquake. Or, and so I'm like, so I said, there about 20 minutes later, I get a call from my wife. There was an earthquake on the border between Arizona and New Mexico last night at 10 o'clock, 5.2 magnitude. I'm like, thank goodness, I'm not crazy. <laughs> there aren't demons in a... <laughs> and, and, but it, it brought me back to my days growing up in Southern California, and I've been through, and if you've ever been through an earthquake, um, you know what it's like, and you know that sound, you know that feeling, um, and then after earthquakes, every aftershock just, ugh, just shakes you, and I... I was working at Forest Home Christian Conference Center back in the early 90s, and um, I wasn't anything big. I, I, I was cleaning toilets. I was part of the accommodations team, an Akamokaze. It was awesome. And so every day, went out, cleaned toilets, made beds, made, made thousands of beds that year. I haven't made one since. And at, at the end of the day, me and my friends, because we're all nerds, we went up and we would play Risk or Access Allies or Diplomacy or whatever, and we'd play it until like 4 a.m., and so we were up on the third story of the fourth center dining room um, in, the, in the staff area, and all of a sudden, it starts, and then it gets going big. And what are you supposed to do when an earthquake happens? You get in a doorway, you hop under the table. What do you think I did, a 19-year-old? I was in full retreat mode. I was like, ah, viva la France! I was retreating, and I was moving, and I went down all these stairs got out 
looked around. My friends were right there with me. We're all looking at each other going, that was huge. And then all of a sudden we hear this. Like, that's different. Hear it again. And one of my friends goes, oh my goodness, avalanche. Sure enough. And so we start running again. Viva la France! All the way down to the river. That night, boulders came off the mountain, went through forest home, crushed two or three teepees, crushed them, flattened them. These teepees hold 20 children each. Luckily, not luckily, divine, it happened on Saturday night, the only time that there were no children at camp. The next morning we got woken up to, I was on, on the top of my bunk, and then within a second, I was on the floor at the side of my bunk, and it was another earthquake, a 7.2, and the doors flying like that. And so I was spooked all summer long. And so what do you do when you're spooked? Well, you realize everybody else is spooked. So the entire summer, me and my friends would scare people by shaking the cabins and shaking the windows, and it was, it was awesome. And one time, we were up, heading up to the staff lounge, um, and then all of a sudden, Inside, there's, there's like couches and a TV, and, and these couches have like, the, they're like more professional couches with legs. And so we're like, oh, this is going to be great, because we saw two people, a guy and a gal. They're both on Forest Home staff. What were they doing in the dark? Hmm. And so they were on the couch. I'm sure they were making Jesus cry, but we weren't able to see. And so they were laying there, and so my friend went under the couch like this, snuck under the couch, so they were for sure making Jesus cry. And then me and my other friend, we got on the, on the walls and the windows, and we just started shaking. They just ran. And all summer we did this. Now, as we get into this Unshakable series, this is exactly what we're going to be talking about. How can we as believers be able to rest on the solid ground that is given to us through Scripture? To understand fully that, number one, God exists— his word is truth, it's inerrant, that he has identified himself, he has revealed himself, not only in nature through general um, revelation, but specifically as well through his word, through prophets, miracles, and ultimately his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to be talking about over the next four weeks. Well, today, we're going to try to define who God is. Does God really exist? And how can we be more sure so that when people come and try to shake our faith, and it happens, out in Santan, I remember um, a couple years ago, I was there and this guy came up to me. He's all, hey, I heard you uh, talk about um, um, the existence of God and the fact that the Bible's true. And he's all, did you know? And they always say, did you know? I'm like, oh, okay. did you know that it's been proven that Moses actually didn't lead the Israelites through the Red Sea and that miracle never happened? Here's why. Because scientists and archaeologists and historians, whatever, prove that they actually went through something called the Reed Sea. And this is like a swampy area and the water's only two inches deep. And he looked at me, he's like, uh-huh, no miracle whatsoever. Now, 20 years ago, that would have shook me. That would have shaken me at my core. I went, uh, what, what? and I would have ran to the nearest pastor. Well, now I'm a little bit more on solid foot. So I was able to look at him and go, well, so you're saying a bigger miracle happened. He's like, what do you, what do you mean? I'm like, you're saying the entire Egyptian army drowned in two inches of water. And he's like, and then so he went for his 
whatever, for help. But those are the type of things because people want to shake you. One of the greatest shakers in modern time is a guy named Richard Dawkins. How many have ever heard of Richard Dawkins? Okay, wrote a book called The God Delusion, wrote many books. Brilliant man, brilliant man. Here's how he opens his book, The God Delusion. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. Petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, don't even know what that means, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. He's going to burn in hell. No, I'm just kidding. But seriously, that, that's powerful stuff. Is that what people think of God? Is that what people think? That if God was true, you can't love him, therefore he's not true. He can't, a God wouldn't really do all those things. Well, here's the thing. The Bible doesn't go out to prove God's existence. The Bible spends no time trying to prove God's existence. The Bible simply declares his existence. It assumes that you are smart enough to realize that there is a God. And so today, we're going to talk more philosophically. We're going to use the Bible, but we're not going to rest on the Bible because we think we can prove that there is a logical explanation for the existence of the universe simply through philosophy. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to get into more special revelation where we're going to dig into the Bible and we're going to show you where God's word actually lines up. So if you have your Bible today, we're going to start in Genesis chapter one. It's at the very beginning. And we're going to look at this declaration. And we're going to go through a couple arguments based off of this that we can find for the existence of God. Genesis chapter one, verse one the most read words in all of literature, people normally get that far before they figure the Bible's boring or whatever the reason they stop. Genesis 1.1 says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Tonight or today, we're gonna focus on the first five words. In the beginning, God created. So let's look at the first three. In the beginning, Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is before all things, so he's at the beginning, he's before the beginning, and all things hold together through him. Hebrews 11.3 says this, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. So the Bible says, here's our declaration Now let's see if this holds water. In the beginning, well, there's an argument, fancy argument, it's called the cosmological argument, and it's the argument for the cause of the universe. And here's how the logical argument goes, and here's what's gonna happen. The the argument's gonna state two premises, and if we can verify that both premise one and premise two are accurate, the conclusion will logically follow, okay? So number one is this. Everything that begins, and you want to underline begins, everything that begins to exist has a cause 
of its existence. If anything has begun to exist, it has to have a cause. It's a law of cause and effect. If you set up a whole bunch of dominoes, how many have ever done that? Set up a whole bunch of dominoes. You say, oh, you know, I got four hours to kill. I'm just going to set up a big old design. And then you finally get it done. And then what do you do? Bring everybody in. Check this out. And you knock it over and... What caused the effect of the dominoes falling? Your finger. Maybe it was the wind. Maybe it was your silly little sister messing up everything. Who knows? But something caused the effect that we see. Could have been an earthquake. Who knows? But there has to be a cause for every effect. Now, both naturalists and theists, those who believe in a God, agree on this, that everything that begins to exist has a cause of its existence. The second premise is this. The universe began to exist. Now, here's where it gets sticky because for centuries, those who did not believe there was a God said the universe is eternal. It has always existed. And then about 100 years ago, guys like Hoyle, Hubble, Einstein actually finally proved scientifically that the universe actually had an exact beginning. The universe actually had a beginning, which for theologians, they immediately went, so what was the cause of the effect that we know is universe? Because we know matter can't bring matter in. What was the cause? So the argument, everything that begins to exist has a cause of its existence. The universe began to exist. So both these premises rationally can be proven to be accurate. Therefore, the conclusion has to follow. The universe has a cause of its existence. Now for science, or for I shouldn't even say science, for naturalists, those who rely on their empirical proof, their five senses, will never say that's God. What they will say is either we don't know yet what the cause was, or they will say it just happened. Well, listen to what NASA astronomer Robert Jastrow says. He says, consider the enormity of the problem. Science has proven that the universe exploded into being at a certain moment. It asks, what cause produced this effect? Who or what put the matter and energy into the universe? Science can't answer these questions. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. His is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. In the beginning. So the first three words, the first declaration of the Bible is true. There was a beginning. So what's the cause? Well, we know that you can't get something from nothing. It's stated, out of nothing, nothing comes. Unless you're a U.S. soccer fan, then you can score absolutely zero goals and still advance. But for the most part... 
I'm just, I'm on the bandwagon. Trust me, I know we will win. I got it. But the laws are pretty set. Out of nothing, nothing comes. So what's the cause? The Bible answers that or declares it by saying in the fourth word, in the beginning, God. Now, that brings up a question that I asked Pastor Lynn 23 years ago, sitting in his office. Well, who created God then? It's a good question. And in order to answer that question, who made God, we first have to define what we mean by God. And what I'm about to define is not a theological definition. This is a definition that both atheists and theists will agree on, okay? The definition of a God. The difference is theists say this person really exists. Atheists say this person doesn't exist. But here's the classic definition of what a God, if he exists, would look like. Number one, he's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. If there is a God, this God has to be all-powerful. He can do anything. He is the most powerful entity in all of the universe, which means anything that is possible, he can do. Now, that doesn't mean he can do the impossible. He can't make two plus two equals seven, but anything that is possible, he can do. He is omnipotent. We have another proof. God created Chuck Norris. Again, all powerful, okay? <laughs> Second proof. God is omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. He knows everything, past, present, future, all-knowing. At no time in the history has God ever been surprised. Has he ever went, oh, I never knew that. God is all-knowing. There is nothing that can be known that he doesn't know already, even from the very beginning of time. He's all-present. That means God is everywhere, all-present. You can't hide from God. Any definition of God would have these three things. If there is a God, he would be unchanging. He can't change. He cannot change. It's against his DNA. A definition of God would be that he is timeless. He is outside the constraints of time because if he was inside it, something would be greater than him and that by definition is impossible. He is spaceless. He's not in space. He can't be constrained by space. He is immaterial, which means he's spirit. Because if he was matter, that means he had to come from something. Supernatural, outside of nature. Uncreated. The very definition of a God, if a God exists, would be that this God cannot be created. Because if he can be created, that means something is more powerful and that it as well as against his definition. So he can't be created. He would have to be an intellect because we see choice. He chose to bring things into existence, so he has to be a mind. All these things are the classic definition of what a God would be. Christians or people who believe in the Bible would say that matches up exactly with what needs to happen for the universe to come into existence. In order for the universe to come into existence, something outside of time, space, matter ha 
has to have brought it in. It has to be eternal because there has to be a first. There has to be a first cause. The definition of God would be a God who is good and just. So as we look at the definition of God, now we come back to the question, who made God? And what that is, is a bogus question. It's like asking, um, who is the married bachelor going to eat dinner with tonight? Married bachelor are in two different categories. You can't be married and a bachelor at the same time. However, you can be a bachelor or a bachelor who became married and you're going to visit Cornerstone Christian Fellowship on August 3rd. There's your plug. Sean Lowe will be here. But you can't be a married bachelor at the same time. You can't be a square circle. If someone asks you, what is the smell of the color of red? It's a bogus question. And so when someone asks you, who made something that is by definition unmakeable? It's a bogus question. It's a category fallacy. God, by very definition, has to be outside time, space, matter, has to be an intellect, has to be immaterial, uncreated. In the beginning, God. He's good, he's just, and he's moral. This comes up to another argument, the moral argument. We believe that there are objective morals that are beyond belief systems, that are beyond cultures. For example, how many in here with a raise of hands, Santan, how many of you by the raise of hands believe that it is morally reprehensible to torture babies? How many believe it's morally wrong to murder, to rape? Where does that belief come from? If there is no God, that belief makes no sense because we're just stardust colliding. We're molecules moving. We see this in the animal kingdom. When we're out on safari, we're not holding trial for the lion that just killed the zebra. We're not calling him a murderer. We see rape, murder happen all over the place. So why can we as humans hold someone accountable for something that's morally unjust unless there is a divine lawgiver? The Bible in Romans 2, 14 through 16, says this, and this is Paul talking to the church in Rome. Indeed, when Gentiles... which are unbelievers, who do not have the law, which is scripture, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Even Paul is saying there are objective moral truths that are outside of culture. And we see this happen right after World War II. As the Nazis were lined up and put on trial uh, trial, and, and they were being accused of all these heinous things, the prosecution came and ran into a problem. Their problem was, yes, 
it was wrong, the Holocaust was wrong, but by German law, it was okay. By that culture, it was okay. So how could we condemn them when they didn't necessarily break a law? And that's where we first see, hit the international scene, this statement. They committed laws against humanity. And so they were convicted and executed by breaking a universal objective moral law. In order for a universal objective moral law to be there, you have to have a lawgiver. You have to have someone who says, this is wrong, this is right. You can't have that outside of God. God is truth. God is life. And God is love. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Or chapter 13. Last night, before the earthquake, I, I was doing a wedding. And almost any wedding you've ever been to, and if you've been to a wedding, you'll hear this passage found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it says this, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. It's the most beautiful definition of what love is and what love does. But have you ever noticed something else in the Bible? Turn to 1 John, towards the end of your Bible, 1 John chapter 4, and starting in verse 8, look what it says. Whoever does not love, or whoever does not love does not know God because, what does it say? God is love. And then on in verse 16, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Here's what we need to understand. For believers, we need to understand not only does God love, but he is by very definition love. We as Christians can love, we as atheists can love, but God is love. So let's reread 1 Corinthians and exchange God for love. God is patient, God is kind. He does not envy, he does not boast, he is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking, he is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. This brings us to a powerful truth. And it's found in the fifth word of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. God's not a distant God who just pushed over a domino and, and, and let everything happen by random succession of things. God was personally involved in creation. In fact, the Bible says that we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good things. We have a purpose. The Bible says that we were knit together in our mother's womb. 
We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Every hair, even you bald people, every hair on your head is numbered by God. He loves you because he is love. By definition, God couldn't not love you even if he wanted to. We serve an amazing God. But is there proof that God created things? Is there proof? Psalm 19, 1 through 4 says this. The heavens tell of the glory of God. The skies display his marvelous craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is silent in the skies, yet their message has gone out to all the earth and their words to all the world. That is a definition of general revelation. God has made himself known simply because his fingerprint is on everything we see. Everything we see through a telescope, everything we see in our eyes, everything we see in a microscope, there is obvious design. And when you see design, you automatically, intuitively posit a designer. Let me give you an example of this. Let's say you're walking on a beach. Get out of Arizona, it's all nice, you're walking on the beach, and all of a sudden you stumble upon this picture. What do you think? Number one, wow, I'm on a cool beach. But could you imagine some, somebody walking and they see this and all of a sudden they, they're calling their wife. You are not going to believe what I just saw. There is a design that just randomly happened. I don't know if it was the tides, the water. Um, I, I don't know what it is, but there's something here that says Starbucks. No, you're going to assume that someone was there for many hours before you designing it. In fact, they placed information within the design. What if you lay back at the beach and you look up and you see this in the clouds? <laughs> Honey, this is twice now. I was looking for shapes of cars and elephants and this happened. No, you're going to assume that there was a sky rider, someone who had seen the Wizard of Oz and was playing a joke. Who knows? But you're not going to assume it just happened because there's obvious design. If somehow you become the first person to step off a spaceship and you walk on to the, the planet Mars and you, and you start walking around and you go, and you see a wrapper and you pick it up and it says in and out hamburgers. The first thing you're going to do is, yes, tired of Tang. But the second thing you're going to do is go, someone else is here. Who is that? Because there's, it's obvious it didn't just happen. And the complexity that we see in the universe through telescopes, through our eyes, and through a microscope is so far beyond what I just described. Romans 1.20 says this, For since cre the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been cl seen clearly, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Sir Frederick Hoyle, a famous British astronomer, not a believer, said this, 
The current scenario of the origin of life is about as likely as a, torpe- or a tornado passing through a junkyard beside a Boeing airplane company and accidentally producing a 747 airplane. It just doesn't happen. When you see design, you naturally believe that there's a designer. The universe is absolutely fine-tuned for existence. And what I, what I mean by that, we don't have much time to look at it, but do you realize if our gravity was any greater or less, life wouldn't exist? If we were any closer to the sun or any further away from it, life wouldn't exist. If we were any closer to the moon or further away from it, life wouldn't exist. If our earth spun a little faster, or a little slower, life wouldn't exist. There are constants in the universe that are so finely tuned for existence that it absolutely beckons someone there tuning it. Someone there designing it. People with a biblical worldview will immediately say, in the beginning, God created. There's intelligence. If you look at DNA, and you do research on DNA, the amount of information that is in every little strand of DNA could fill libraries. Where did that come from? How did that happen accidentally? And DNA is such a powerful argument that it even convinced Anthony Flew. Now, Anthony Flew is to atheism what Billy Graham is to Christianity. And here's what he said. The argument to intelligent design is enormously stronger than it was when I first met it. It now seems to me that the findings of more than 50 years of DNA research have provided materials for a new and enormously powerful argument to design. Anthony Flew is no longer an atheist. I'd love to say he's a Christian. He's not. He's a deist. But he does believe there had to be something that started this. So as we close, I want to leave you with this. And over the next few weeks, we're now going to get out of the philosophical arguments and start getting into Scripture. Because once you believe that something started everything, that there is a cause, that there is someone who gave us moral laws, that there is a designer, now we need to discover who this designer is. We need to figure out what we are to do. And I love what it says in Isaiah chapter 43. But now, this is what the Lord says, he who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba for your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from a farm and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God is love.
He is truth. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus could say he is the way because by definition, he is truth and he is life. And God loved you so much that he prepared a way for you to have a relationship with him, a relationship based on his very existence, and that is love. If you are in here, God loves you. I don't care what you did in your past, what you're going through today, what you might do in the future. God loves you and he can't stop loving you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I want to challenge you. If you don't know God, what are you waiting for? You are not an accident. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you that you were in the beginning and that you created us with love, with passion and pride. You designed us. You knit us together. Heavenly Father, you are so worthy of our worship. Heavenly Father, I pray that if there's someone in here that does not know what it means to have a relationship with you based on love, that they will not leave this building, that they will come forward and talk ask questions and seek you out. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you loved us. We thank you for who you are. We love you and we praise your name. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.